Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Maximum more. Punch it. Punch it. Punch it, Bishop! Punch it. Punch that shit! Let's punch it. Welcome, everybody. This is Punch It, episode three, and I am your co-host, Tristan Riddell, and with me, as she is always and for all time, Charlene Schmidt. We are here to talk about some really cool things today. I, I am thoroughly excited about today's episode because if you've seen the headline, if you've seen the show art, you understand what we're talking about today, and you know that if you've listened to some of our other shows, you know that it holds a special place in our hearts. And what we're talking about today is House of Cards. Oh, yes. Bring it. Bring it. I have been dying to do this podcast for several months now, and I am so relieved that that moment is finally here. When we were workshopping ideas for Punch It, like, what? okay, so we're, we're going to release Punch It. We're going to release three episodes at once. What are we going to talk about within those three episodes? And you and I almost simultaneously said, House of Cards, House of Cards, House of Cards. (laughs) Yes, because we both love this show. And that's that's even kind of a little bit of an understatement. I mean, we really love this show. (laughs) I, okay, there, (laughs) I want to tell you a story. So. Tell me a story. What happened was is that we did a we did a huge review of House of Cards on Nerd Nuptial, which you can find at the nerdparty.com. I remember. It's a show that I host with my wife. And so we were talking about it constantly, you know, coming up to it because we started the show. We started Nerd Nuptial in January or beginning of February, and that's when we launched the network. And so for a couple of weeks, we were talking about how we're excited that season four was going to come out. And then we did one big episode, which was a huge retrospective of what we loved of House of Cards. And then the next episode was as soon as we finished watching season four. We podcasted about it, got a, you know, got a lot of positive input. But then after that weekend, I went to work and everyone started asking me like, hey, what'd you do over the weekend? I was like, oh, I watched House of Cards season four. Didn't you know? And uh, like, what else did you do? And I was like, no, I just watched season four of House of Cards. I watched it twice. And they're like, what do you mean you watched it twice? You watched two episodes? No, I watched season four twice over the weekend and then my, <laughs> my a buddy of mine at work, who's a big friend of mine now, but he he just started. He's like, it's like Tristan, do you do you leave your house on the weekends? Do you have friends? Like he just he's <laughs> trying to wrap his head around my experience, and uh, that is how much I and you and we love House of Cards. That is some serious dedication. I can't say I was that gung ho. I didn't watch it twice when it opened uh, over that weekend. However. The release of a new season of House of Cards is also an event. I remember, not this last year, but the year before for season three, I actually took the day off of work because it was releasing on a Friday to watch it. And I watched it virtually 
with our friend Lori Sears, who co-hosted To The Journey with us for the first 50 episodes. And we were commenting on it as we were going through. And like if we needed a break, we would take a break at the same time. And yeah. Were you texting or were you video chatting? What were you doing? No, we were texting because that was a lot of bandwidth if we were video chatting. Oh yeah, no, I, no, no. That's that's still awesome that you were texting each other like as, as it was going on. I don't think I could do it because I shut out the entire world. I shut out even the girl. <laughs> like when House of Cards is going on. Uh, yeah, I, I understand that perspective too because that's sort of what I did with season four. And mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to get into this show. I mean, it's deep. It's got a, it's got a lot of rich content. There are so many layers that you can dig into. You're constantly questioning whether this nuance means this or that. What are the motivations of the characters right now? What is the end goal here? What's going on? And that's what I love about House of Cards. At least that's one thing. And uh, we should talk about what we love about this show so much. We've talked about just in general the show and we're geeking out, but let's, let's add some detail here. Well, this is Punch It! And so I think one of the key things about the show that I particularly love is the writing. It is great writing because you can have a lot. There's a lot of HBO shows and Netflix shows and AMC shows that are out there that look gorgeous, that have great actors, but have crappy storylines and unbelievable dialogue. And with House of Cards, you have everything. It's shot well. It's acted well. Oh, gosh, yes. It's written amazingly. And the creator and lead writer of the show for the first four seasons was Bo Williman. And so I think a lot of credit needs to go to Bo Williman because he went to Columbia University as well as Juilliard. Nice. And it's 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 funny because he's only done he's only written one movie, which is The Ides of March, which is a political movie. Okay. And he also has written some plays, but his main claim to fame and his main workhorse is House of Cards. And were you as surprised as I was when he said that he was going to be leaving House of Cards after season four. Yes. And I still question why, because isn't season five, this forthcoming season, allegedly the last one? I'm hoping that it's the last one. I, I really am because, not because I don't like the show, obviously, but right. because season four blew me away so much. It's, it is by far my favorite season. and I would agree with you. I don't want it to fizzle out. Yes, yes. I don't want it to go on and on for the end of time. And I feel like season four has set up perfectly season five to be that last final season. Things are going to reach their logical conclusion in a decent pacing of time. Yes, as much as I love the show and I'm going to hate it when it ends because there's not going to be anything more. uh, Yeah, I want it to go out on a high note. And if that means ending it at season five, so be it. Make it happen. It's going to be great. Yeah, season five is a, is a great number to end on with this kind of show. Like, I, when I, after season three was done, I didn't particularly like season three. A lot of people didn't. Yeah, I, I mean, I still enjoyed it overall because it's House of Cards and because I love these characters. But how do I put it? It's just, it was very subpar compared to season one and season two. And it felt overly melodramatic and... It just, I know, like, here, here's the thing about House of Cards. It's, it, this is how, I, how I've always perceived it, and this is how the showrunners kind of talk about it. It's a hyper-reality, okay? It's based uh-huh. in realism, but it's amped up. <laughs> Do they punch it up? 
Oh. <laughs> um, no, that's that's what we're going to do later in the show, but <laughs> before we get to that. And so to go back to your original question, because I totally dodged it, um, <laughs> it was surprising that uh, Bo Willeman would leave th- when, you know, like season five could potentially be the last season. Why wouldn't you do it all the way through? I feel this is complete guesswork, folks. Okay, okay. okay. This, is, this is no basis in any fact or anything that I've read online or anyone that I've talked to in the industry. This is a complete guess. My thought is, is that I felt very little of Bo Williman in season four. You think he was letting go? I think he was pushed out. Oh, by whom? I think what happened was, is that they wanted to, to diversify the writing staff. I feel like they wanted to add in different voices to Bo Williman's writing staff because he's the head writer. Mm-hmm. And so he has complete control, not not complete control, but he has almost complete control over who's in the writing room and, and, and what they talk about and what they do and everything like that. And we got so many different writers in season four and so many different voices uh, like in front of and behind the camera. You could really tell the female influence. Yeah. And this is no judgment on Bo Williman's character whatsoever about perceived sexism or diversity or anything like that. So do not take it that way. I'm just saying that from a, from the perspective of someone who's in control and then he has outside influences telling him that he needs to change his writer's room, I would think that would piss me off if I was the head writer and I was forced to replace certain people I love to be in the writer's room with other people who I wouldn't necessarily like. Sure. And so I felt his influence on the show, his style of writing felt like it kind of fell to the wayside in season four. So I think he was all already kind of gone during season four, and he just made it official for season five. That is okay. complete guesswork, absolute conjecture. Now, let's say that your theory is absolutely true. How much do you suppose season three and the general reaction to that? Because I feel like overall people said, eh, yeah, it wasn't quite as good as the first two seasons. How much do you think that had in play? with possibly forcing him out. I think it, with this conjecture, uh, I think it was probably the main reason. I think, uh, and I also think on top of that, is that Robin Wright was a big force behind that. Not necessarily towards Bo Williman or to force Bo Williman out, but she wanted to get more involved. Oh, and she totally is. I mean, she is directing, she's acting, and she's doing a heck of a job. She's one of the things I love most about this show, by the way. Oh, yeah, by far. Claire Underwood, besides her character being one of the greatest inventions in the past 10 years <laughs> in fiction, I feel like Robin Wright has just resurged in a big way. Oh, yeah. She's become this huge creative force, and this is something that I'm sure she always has been, but now she has the clout to make it happen, because she said that uh, just recently that uh, once she's done with House of Cards, she doesn't really want to act anymore. Think she wants to take on a more director's role? Because I totally see that in the cards. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's what she said. She's like, once she tasted directing, she realized that's what she wanted to do. Nice. And hey, good for her because she's a heck of a director and I know she'll be successful at it. Go, girl, go. Do it. <laughs> and she directed a little bit in season three, but she directed even more in season mm-hmm. four. A lot more. And also, you saw a whole lot more female names behind the camera in season four. Yes, and speaking of which, with the upcoming season five, I know one of the uh, directors is going to be one of your favorite people, Roxanne Dawson. 
No. Yes. She no. is directing an episode of House of Cards, and I can't believe you didn't know that. I'm not too surprised that I haven't heard because uh, during the year, I try to avoid as much behind-the-scenes information as I can just because I don't want to get spoiled. Not that, you know, Roxanne Dawson directing is a spoiler by any means. I'm just saying that that's probably why I didn't hear about it. For those of you who don't know, Roxanne Dawson played one of my favorite female characters of all time in Star Trek. I, no, I mean, just my, my absolute favorite female character in Star Trek. That's uh, Belana Torres in Star Trek Voyager. And she has moved on from acting to become a TV director, and she's a damn good one, too. Oh, yeah, she's doing some incredible work on some very high-profile series. Oh, man. See, I really think that, like, I can't say that it's Robin Wright's, not responsibility, that's not the right word that I'm looking for, or doing, or direct doing, but we're getting so many more female voices in House of Cards, and the show is only getting better. That can't be a coincidence. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to think that her influence, just in general, has had a positive influence on the show. That's why season four ramped up. Going back just a little bit to season three, I feel like the reason why the reaction in general was negative is because it lacked the intensity of seasons one and two, and then also four. I feel like season three was a lot of legwork to set us yeah. up for season four. Mm. And it wasn't like it was bad, but it had to take all those steps, and maybe that is why it came across as melodramatic, just because we had to go through all of that to get to the fun stuff again. I think that's a very good way at looking at things. I, I think so, because I was so utterly satisfied with season four that I'm able to forgive season three of its failings because of <laughs> exactly what you just said. Because... Here's the thing, like when we, when the girl and I, and also um, the girl is what I call my wife for any new listeners, when the girl and I saw season three and we were done with it, we were just kind of like, okay, well, you know, that was subpar. Hopefully season four will be the last season because we didn't want a repeat of season three. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, well, you know, four seasons, it's very political, four years, you know, like it's, you know, that'd be a nice <laughs> breadth of time. But then we saw season four and we're like, bring on season five. Let's keep going. We got to do this because she and I literally screamed at the end of season four. Oh, I know. Was that not crazy? I, I'm, I really don't want to give too many spoilers just in case we have listeners who have not seen it. Yeah. But holy whoa. Yeah. For those of you who haven't seen season four, we're not going to we're going to try our best not to ruin too many things. But some things might slip out. But you should absolutely watch it because... In a couple of months, we're going to be getting season five. Yeah. So, yeah, watch season four. Okay, so one thing that I want to talk about, I, I want to read just a few quotes on the uh, on the writing. Okay, yeah, this is a writing podcast. <laughs> so what happened was is that it got better critical praise in season four. It got an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, and which is um, the second highest ratings next to season two at 88%. I was really surprised to see that season two was rated higher than season one. I'm not surprised. No? No, no, season two was pretty darn good. Oh, no, I loved it too, but I thought season, I thought I heard more people say that season one is kind of the standard. Mm, well, yeah, I suppose, okay, season one is a very good baseline. It's a very good season. However, I feel like season two picks up right where season one left and runs with it. So to not only match that intensity, but maybe even exceed it at times, that's that's quite an achievement because season one was that good. 
it very much is an achievement. Yes, absolutely. So here's one like this, like if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, it says the critical consensus is House of Cards retains its binge worthiness by ratcheting up the drama and deepening Robin Wright's role even further. Not Claire Underwood's role, Robin Wright's role even further. So this did not go missed. Uh, Yeah, a lot of people noticed. It wasn't just us. And also Ben Travers from IndieWire, he uh, he loved the season and he said, He called it an upgrade from what was perceived as messy and unsatisfying melodramatic third season, and that the writing in House of Cards is aiming at authenticity and for what feels like the first time consistently finding it. Hmm. Okay. Authenticity. That's an interesting word. Uh, How exactly do you suppose he is meaning that? Meaning it's relating to how things really work in Washington? I don't think season four can be blamed for being authentic on how things work in Washington. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're we're not going to say. All we're going to say is is that season four got a lot of criticism for for what we're alluding to with Frank's running mate. That's all we're going to say. And okay, yeah. And so it's definitely not authentic there. But that's when, like, a lot of people came to me, a lot of friends, and came to me and said, "No, season four is unbelievable. They're off the rails." I don't care how dramatic it is. I don't care how good the acting is. It's just we're not the audience isn't stupid and we shouldn't be treated like we're stupid. And I said, hey, buddy, I hear you. Okay, I understand. I feel your pain. I get it. (laughs) But this is a hyper reality where they took a lot of time to set up Frank's running make running mate. And I want to spoil it so bad because I want (laughs) to. I want to. Okay, I'm going to talk about it for 30 seconds. That's how long I'm going to talk about it. Okay. Okay. So people who have like who are on like a podcast app and you can hit like 15 second ahead, hit it now twice. Okay. Here we go. So Claire Underwood is Frank's running mate for the presidential campaign. A lot of people didn't like it, but they set it up in a way where the first lady had a better approval rating than anybody else. Does that sound familiar to you right now? Well, uh, you know, you could make some allusions to things that have been happening lately. I mean, our political climate is so crazy, I don't think it's impossible. At all. I don't either. And that's the thing, is that, like, we have a former first lady running for president. That's right. And we have a first lady in the office that has a higher approval rating than anybody else in office. Now, she doesn't hold an office, but you know what I'm saying. Right, right, right. And so, yes, okay, so that's that's all I'm going to talk about. So 30 seconds, done. 30 seconds, that's it, that's it. All right, so now that we've got that through, (laughs) season four, building up to season five, we want the show to end. Where do we want to go from here? I mean, I I think the show is going to reach a fairly logical conclusion, and I don't want to give it away here. (laughs) Mm. So I've sort of backed myself into a corner, for one thing, just in case I'm wrong. But also, again, a spoiler alert, and I don't want everybody skipping through bits and pieces of our podcast. You know what I would like to do is, since we are talking House of Cards, and this is a writing podcast, we decided we were going to write a story about House of Cards, and I want us to go back. Yes. I think it would be very cool if we wrote a short story, let's say, on a kind of on a prequel area of things before House of Cards began. I think it's a great idea. Uh, you and I have talked about what we were going to do for the second half of this podcast. And we knew we wanted to do an original idea of House of Cards, something that fit into the House of Cards reality. And all you and I have talked about is 
maybe we could do something before. That's all that we have talked about. So this is going to be another episode on the fly, kind of like what you heard in the first episode with TNG. So this is the House of Cards version of episode on the fly. And the only rules we have so far is that it's a prequel. So let's go ahead and get the whiteboard out. All right, so House of Cards prequel, here we go. I do have to admit, I've thought about it a little bit, just a little bit. I've got a kernel of an idea, but let's hear yours first. Okay, so the only thing that I really am thinking is I want it to take place at Harvard. Oh, okay, while Frank was going to school? Both of them were going to school. Well, right, yeah. So Frank and Claire, that's where they met. They met at Harvard where uh, he was, where Frank was going to Harvard Law and she was getting her master's in public health at Harvard. And they were, they were there at the same time. And with all this political news, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if how they met showed how Claire was just as devious as Frank? Oh my God, this is so funny because my kernel of an idea for this story was, what if we explore how Frank and Claire met? <laughs> yeah, okay. I kid you not. There's the story. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to go there. Let's do this. Harvard, they're meeting. And I would love to explore Claire's deviousness because for one thing, if she's going to pair up with a Frank Underwood, yeah, there's got to be a little something there. But yeah, we know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know this anyway. Let's set the stage. So. They're getting their masters. You know, they they already have their undergrad. They're you know they're not eighteen. No. They're what would what would you say? Like they're they'd have to be above twenty one. So let's just say mid twenty. Yeah, I would say maybe like twenty two, twenty three. They could even be a little bit older if we wanted to. You know, but that, regardless, we're talking twenties. They're in their twenties. Yeah, yeah. So, what's the meet cute? They don't meet in class because, you know, he's in a separate school. Right. They're on separate programs, so how are they going to actually get together? I'm wondering, like, is Claire campaigning for something? Like, because she's studying public health, is she one of those students who's hosting a rally? Ooh. You know, make, maybe this is where the birth of the Clean Water Initiative is. Like, maybe this is where she gets the idea mm-hmm. to start the Clean Water Initiative, because maybe she is on campus, she has the megaphone, and she is telling people to, you know, like, put their attention towards overseas to make sure that people have clean water. So that's kind of an interesting angle because I would say if they're going to school, let's say in the 80s, clean water is maybe not an issue that's very much in the American consciousness, especially overseas. Uh, It is now. Yeah. We're aware of it. Yeah. And we see things like ad campaigns for it and whatnot. But back then, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, when they were going to school, I was not bored. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> right, and I was very little, so I had no awareness either. So we could be totally wrong. But maybe, let's say, that Claire is kind of one of the pioneers of this whole thing. I like that idea. Not one to stand in the shadows. Not one to stand in the sidelines. Someone who is very much a leader someone who rallies people together literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. And so let's say Frank attends one of those rallies. Like he's, he's been in the library all night. He's been studying. He's been hitting the books. And so he's walking across campus and he sees all this commotion going on. Yeah. What's all this noise? <laughs> Can't people just be quiet? I'm tired. So, so how, how do we get them to speak? Now, does he just notice her there? And then, then goes and speaks to her later? Or does he notice her there and speaks to her there? 
Ooh, we could do this either way because I would love to see that moment, you know, visually where he spots her. He's immediately enamored with her. He has that thought of, ooh, I want to get to know her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then does he start to make a move after that or is Frank just going to go for it and start talking to her right on the spot? I feel like it could go either way. I know. I'm trying to figure this out because I, like Frank is very direct, but at the same time, he works behind the scenes to get what he wants. Yeah, he's very much a strategist, so maybe he's going to do his homework on her a little bit. He's going to find out her name, some things about her, and then that way, when he does meet her again, and I say that with air quotes because he's going to very intentionally put himself in front of her. I think that's a good way to go because let's let's put him with somebody. Let's say like he's with a friend or a roommate or something like that. They're okay. walking across campus together. That way we get some conversation going. Yeah. You know, the, the camera's with him. We're following. And then he, do he doesn't go into the rally. He, he doesn't join the rally, but he can hear her speak. And she's incredibly eloquent. Of course. Of course. And he turns to his friend and says, who's that? And his friend goes, oh, that's, uh, that's Claire Hale. She's, uh, she's studying public health. And so she's always doing crap like this. Come on, let's go. And he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and he wants to listen for a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he wants to listen to her speak. I love it. All right. So, okay. So I think you have a great idea with having the meet later. So like we see that he's interested. He is thoroughly intrigued. I'm picturing long blonde hair on Claire, you know, like very Forrest Gump era. <laughs> I, I was just going to say kind of like Jenny on Forrest Gump because this yes. is Robin Wright. Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> she still has that twang. She still has her Dallas yes. accent. Yep. Yes. She's got to have the accent. That's one detail I kind of liked about uh, House of Cards season four is learning a little bit more about Claire. And uh, again, that has some parallels to somebody we know in the political climate. Just saying. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so I'm thinking, okay, when I go back to my college years, when I start thinking about it, when I, when I saw somebody across the way, like if I knew I was interested in someone, I don't know if this was by design or just dumb luck. I would always see them in the library and that's when I would approach them and that's when I would ask them out is usually in the library because most of the time, at least where I went to school, people would go to the library to be alone. Like you didn't see mm. too many group study sessions at, at my school. Right. Well, if you're going to do uh, a group study session, chances are you're going to go to a place that allows a little more noise than a library. Right. You're right. going to study on your own in the library. Well, that's a very convenient place. So let's do that. So let's have Claire Hale, the future Miss Un Mrs. Underwood. She's studying at the library. She's not at a rally. She's not, you know, she's actually studying for school. And so Frank goes in there, sees her, like recognizes her, goes and sits down. How direct is he? Ooh. Does he say, I'm interested, let's go out? Or does he try to engage her in conversation first by saying like, hey, you know, like, what are you studying? What are you? And I'm sensing she would have no interest. <laughs> Uh, yeah, at first, uh, I feel like Claire's not going to have any interest. There's going to be this cocky guy who has the gall to sit at her table, interrupt her study. And what the heck does he want anyway? Well, clearly one thing, right? Because he's a guy. And she's mm -hmm. just like, no, Frank has to win her over. Right. So I feel like his initial approach is going to be clumsy and awful. And it's not going to work at all on Claire. I think you're right. I think I think he tries the direct approach mm -hmm. where he says he's like, "Hey, I'm interested. I loved how you how you spoke. You're beautiful. 
let's go out sometime because he once said, when I want somebody, I want them. You know, yeah, he said that yeah, in the yeah. show. So he's just going to go directly for it. Cut the BS. Yeah. And so she's going to she's gonna say, I'm busy. Go away. Right. So we have a scene in the middle where he's kind of, maybe he's talking with his roommate again. And he's like, what am I going to do? I can't stop thinking about this woman. She's fantastic. Um, you know, like she just has such a verve about her, such, such passion. And the roommate says, well, instead of just complimenting her on her beauty and saying that you want her how about you engage her mind instead and that's when frank has a great idea and the next time he sees her he says i'm running for president of the harvard law review Mm -hmm. and i need your help okay okay and so from there that intrigues her where like initially she's like why would i just want to help you you know like get into the harvard law review when it has nothing to do with me Right. And at this point, I would say she probably has very little to no interest in politics in terms of office. But this is the situation that reminds her of the benefit of playing politics because his bartering, like his quid pro quo is, if you help me get into office, you're going to see a lot more writing about overseas regulations and legislations when it comes to clean water, healthy food, things like that. Yeah, he'll have, he'll be in a position to amplify her efforts. So it is a win-win. So Frank finds a way to convince her this is a mutually beneficial relationship. Yes. So even though maybe she's a little reluctant, like maybe she doesn't completely trust him, doesn't completely like him, she's going to go with it because she wants what she wants. Right. It intrigues her. And so, and he says, he's like, hey, this isn't about romance. This is This is just about furthering our positions here on campus and everything like that and so at first you know it's the it's the trope you know like hey i know we're interested in each other but clearly you're not interested so let's just work together and we all know where it's going (laughs) right 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 i mean yeah of course frank has the underlings here of a certain end goal Mm -hmm. but we should also not underestimate claire she knows what's going on too and she's going to keep him at arm's length at all times So we still have the future question of how he's going to win her over. However, this is a great way to get things started so that they start to get to know each other. Right. Absolutely. They spend they spend time together. They start campaigning together. She does her research. He does his research and they get into the political process. They they throw themselves into it and they realize that there are certain situations along the way that excite them about the idea of power. And Frank wants the power. Claire wants the influence. Yes. Also, they find out that they are a darn good pair. They work well together. So they find out that they work well together before they realize that they work well together as a couple. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that in this story, you know, Frank has a lot of opposition. Like there is a lot of um, a lot of competition for this year's volume of uh, Harvard uh, Law Review president. And I think this is the situation where maybe they work hard and then at the last minute they uh like Frank realizes that it's over, it's dead, it's never going to happen, something comes out and like maybe somebody gets a lot of support. But then I'm thinking this is where Claire works behind the scenes to get done what needs to get done. I like that. Let's add one uh, one thing. Let's show just how unlikely of a candidate he is where honestly there is a clear favorite 
who's the front runner, mm-hmm. and Frank is the underdog. Nobody really knows who he is, at least not that well. He's okay. not a very popular name, uh, and he's very much an underdog. Okay. Very much an underdog. And so the fact that he's even had a chance up to this point is remarkable. People start to know who he is, learn what he's about. He has some support, but then, yes, when there's just this thin margin, he's going to lose by just an edge. Claire goes to work. Right. What is she going to do? How is this going to happen? Oh, man. Okay, so this is the question, because I like your idea of making him the underdog. I mean, that's Frank, right? I mean, he's always been kind of the underling. I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, I mean, he, he won Gaffney how many times in a row? Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I'm not saying he's a loser, but he's used to coming back from almost impossible situations. Okay, I like that better. I like that better than saying he's an underling. Okay, okay, okay. And like that that amazing line in season four when he's holding up the, the picture of his father and he's like, I had to fight for everything my entire life. Yes, yes. I mean, that is Frank. If you have to break it down into like just one nutshell right there, that's the line. That's it right there. And so this is no different, but this is his rise to prominence. This is his rise to power. This is the first section because another yeah. president of the United States was once the president of the Harvard Law Review. Can you guess who that was? Yes, Barack Obama. That's correct. In 1990, he was the president and he had a lot of opinions. He wanted to make sure that minority voices were heard. And that was very much his rise to prominence because there was a New York Times article written in 1990 about how the first black president of the Harvard Review was a man named Barack Hussein Obama. (laughs) And... Now we all know that name. And so with Frank, he knows that this is a step in the right direction and it'll get him noticed. And now that he's had a taste of it, he is power hungry. He can't lose. And so he's the underdog in the race. He's not the favorite. And then it's it comes out close that it's not going to happen. And so Claire does something. Yeah. What is Claire not afraid to do? Sleep with people. Hate to say it. Would she do that for political gain? Like, would she sleep with the other candidate? That's a little too smarmy, though, because that looks bad on her, it looks bad on Frank, and it looks bad on the other guy. Let's not even go there. And also, do we know Do we know that she's slept with people for political um, prowess? I don't think she has. I mean... Well, no, she. we just know that she kind of gets whatever she wants. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Claire does. That. I don't think Claire sleeps around for gain. I don't. I don't think so. Okay. I don't. I don't think we've had any evidence of that in the show. But why did your brain go there? What are you thinking about? Maybe she's not afraid to use sexual intimidation. Ooh. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Because we definitely have seen that before. She's played those cards. Like even with that scene in Zoe. Like that was like uh-huh. that scene in season one where she towers over Zoe in her heels. Yeah. And she plays with her hair and she gets real close. And you're thinking at that moment, like, oh, my God, like, is this going to happen? Like, what? like, well, yeah, like, what are you doing? Yeah. What's the real intention here? And side note, Robin Wright said that they filmed a version where Robin or Claire actually kissed her. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And they didn't use it. Oh, wow. I feel like that's too direct. I'm glad they kept it vague. Yes, I, I agree. I think I, I like the subtlety of it. So what if she does something like that where Claire doesn't sleep around because she values herself more than that? Yes. But yet she's not scared to use sexual intimidation where she knows that she's gorgeous. Uh-huh. She knows that she can manipulate men because she is gorgeous. Okay. And it's her own way of fighting the patriarchy. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I don't feel like that's off base at all. And you know what? Whether you like it or not, uh, it can work. It can work, and especially with the sleaze of politics. Now, I, I'm sure yeah. that we're overstating what it takes, you know, like the kind of the oh, behind-the-scenes yeah. yeah. maniacal things that happen for the Harvard Law Review, but this is the <laughs> hyper-reality that we're talking about. Exactly. Okay, so Claire's going to use her feminine wiles mm -hmm. to sway voters. What is, what is she working at specifically here? I'm thinking... This is just the first thing that comes in my head. And this might be too much of a trope, but you let me know. Okay. Where she realizes that they're not going to win. So Claire knows that any scandal is good scandal in this type of election, especially when you have the underdog. And whether it's for the, the Harvard Law Review or the presidency or any political office, she knows this. <laughs> Frank has even taught her this. And so what Claire does is that she does not sleep with the opponent, but she seduces the opponent and she sets him up in a way that gets him caught by his girlfriend. And she does the anti-campaigning for her. Ooh, okay. But here's the thing. Are people aware of how tied she is to Frank's campaign? And is that going to look bad on her too? Maybe they're not. Maybe she's a silent partner because she knows that she's going to benefit from Frank being in the law review with the quid pro quo that they mentioned before. So maybe she is a silent partner she is a silent campaigner so she's working behind the scenes enough to not be noticed basically right okay okay maybe those who even do know the association it's too late and the damage is done and frank wins the election yeah i mean like i know it's simplistic it's to the point maybe even a bit of a trope but in this hyper reality that we keep talking about where they're young they're mid-20s frank is hungry claire is smart and she doesn't do it because she's quote-unquote slutty. She does it because she knows it would work. Right, right. That's a big, huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe it is simplistic, but this is also a time when they're just starting out. Yep. They're figuring these things out. It's not too complex yet. They're developing their game. And it just so happens to work. So I feel like we can go there. We can do this and get away with it. <laughs> Just like Frank and Claire are going to get away with it. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. That's our prequel story. Yeah. And from that point forward, we know that Frank and Claire are oh, more or less inseparable, especially when it comes to their political gain. Yes. <laughs> especially when it comes to that. Yes. Yes. Everything else, you never know. But that for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to subscribe to Punch It on whatever service you're on. Also, please listen, download, and subscribe to our other shows on the Nerd Party Network. We got Star Trek talk, Star Wars talk, film talk, TV talk. Everything that makes you a nerd is on the network now, coming to you every single day of the week is a new episode from the Nerd Party. So go to thenerdparty.com. Also, interact with us at facebook.com slash thenerdparty. You can also find us on Twitter at joinnerdparty. You can also find us personally on Twitter at the insane Robin and... Oh, the profanity. One other thing that we want you to do is go to lootcrate.com slash nerdparty. From there, you can check out a fantastic geek subscription box that you can get $40 worth of merchandise for less than 20 And if you go to lootcrate.com slash nerdparty, enter in code nerdparty, you'll save even more money off of that. You can also find a way to email us directly by going to thenerdparty.com slash contact and selecting punch it. And from there, you can send us a message of what you think about House of Cards. 
What do you think about the writing? What do you think about season four? What did you think about the previous seasons? And where do you want season five to go? Please let us know. We want to talk to you guys. So next week, we have another fun episode for you. We're going to be on a regular schedule because you got three episodes all at once during the launch. Next week, we're going to be opening on Thursdays. So look for us then. And we cannot wait to punch it. Ready for warp, sir. Let's punch it. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.